arguably one of the most difficult questions candidates face during fit interviews is you know the question around talk me through an opportunity where you had to lead a team or talk me through an opportunity where you had to manage conflict in a team situation or what i tend to do is i tend to combine those situations where i say you know talk me through how you've um led a team and particularly an opportunity where you either managed a conflict or a particularly difficult situation and to be honest it's one of my favorite questions that i ask you know i ask it now heavily when we do screening for firms consulting but also when i was a partner it was pretty much the only question i asked for fit and because it's such a broad question and because there's so much digging i could do behind the question it i didn't need to ask any other questions i could set up this question to be the um, nexus around which I'd manage the entire discussion. When the person gave me the responses, I could dig in and ask a lot of details. And the reason I like this question is because it's got so many moving parts here. You know, it's looking at your role as a leader. It's looking for at your role, as how you manage your team. It's examining your role of your role and your definition of teamwork. It's looking at how you uh, work within a team. It's looking at how you manage conflict. It's looking at how you manage parties, aka cons- clients, um, and how you um, um, you know set up promises, and how you basically manage just about everything you'll face in a consulting assignment. So there are many different kind of questions you know that a consulting firm could lay, but I feel this is the best one, and I feel that this is the one people mess up the most because it is a it is a lot going on in this question. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to deconstruct this question, tell you what it's looked for, and then I'm going to give you an example of how to answer this. And like the uh, podcast, you know, tell me why you went to the school, there are certain kinds of responses that play well to the interviewer, um, and there are certain kinds of responses that don't play well to the interviewer. So let's just deconstruct this, right? So if you're asked to talk about leadership, let's assume you just asked, you know, talk about a leadership example. I would always talk about a situation where you led a team through a particularly challenging situation. I would not waste this opportunity. You may not be asked about conflict resolution, so this is your only chance to address this. But by and large, it's very rare. I know McKinsey especially and BCG, I've seen them do this. I mean, I know, I did it, right? We'll dig and dig and dig until we find the conflict when you're leading a team. So when you get this leadership kind of question, and assuming it could be in the form of tell me about a time you led a team or tell me about a time you led a team through a particularly difficult situation, it's important that you understand the different parts that belong in the story. Because what I do find is many candidates talk to just one part of the story, but they don't talk about all the parts in the story. But I think the first thing is that you have to set the scene, right? You have to be very clear about your role, who reported to you, Right, so you know what was your role? When did this happen? Was this two years ago? Was this three years ago? Timing is very important. You know, you know, did this happen three years ago when you were 25, or two years ago when you were 38? So be clear about the timing. Explain your role in the organization. You were the team leader. Who were you reporting to? Right? Who was reporting to you? How many people did you have reporting to you directly? How many indirectly? Were there any dynamics there that were important? That explains the um, magnitude of the um, challenge that you faced. It's very important that when you talk about leadership, you actually have people reporting to you. you know, most people forget that leadership, you're either an informal leader whereby you take charge of a situation or you're a formal leader where you have people reporting to you. Both are okay, but you need to clarify that. Then you need to explain the purpose 
of the assignment or the initiative you are leading and the challenge. Now, what I do find people do very well is they explain the situation. They basically explain the background very well. They'll say something like, I was leading a team of engineers to develop a new IT system for a pharmaceutical client in India, and we're facing some challenges in getting the product out. But what is more interesting is that you must focus on what the challenges are. And I'll let me explain to you why it's important. You have to explain why the challenge is important so I can understand why it was worthwhile to fix it in the first place. Because what a lot of candidates do is they'll talk about a challenge, but they won't actually explain to me what the challenge is or why it was worth fixing. So they'll tell me something like, you know, I spent weeks trying to convince this manager to get him to change his perception about maybe, you know, coding in a different language. But they'll never explain to me the implications of fixing the problem. They'll never say something like, you know, the reason why I thought this was a battle worth fighting was because if we did this, we would save the client so much money we would save the company so much money and we would become a market leader. So what you got to show me is that why was this conflict worth resolving? Why was it worth the effort? Because in the back of my head, one of the things I'm always thinking about is that, you know, are you the kind of person who's turning a mountain out of a molehill? You know, I think that's the phrase. You turn a mountain out of a molehill. You know, you take something that's really not worth fighting about, but you turn it into something much larger than it should be. So you've got to convince me in your talk or your response, sorry, that... Um, the, the challenge or the conflict you were fixing was worth fixing, right? So you got to make, you got to explain it. Then you have to explain exactly how you fixed the problem. Be very specific, right? A lot of candidates forget to explain that part. They'll talk about how we fixed it, or they'll talk about something else. Basically, what they do is they'll explain the context, who, who your, the role that they were in, who reported them, who they reported to, the challenge briefly, and then they'll forget to explain how they'll fix it. They'll simply jump into the result. You must explain how you fixed it, right? How you ex how you fixed it is very important, and and within how you fixed it, I want to know what you did, why you did it. I want to know exactly what you did, right? And why you did. And I've mentioned this in the previous podcast. Don't give me your opinions. Give me the facts. Tell me what you did, and let me, as the interviewer, interpret your actions. Now, the most important thing I am looking for in this response is the quotes. Now, let's assume that, using the same example of getting your boss to change the language in which you are programming the software, let's assume that you had to get him to change his mind, and you got him to change his mind through one discussion, right? Don't tell me, this is what you shouldn't do, right? Listen to this. You should not speak like this. You shouldn't say, well, I sat down with my manager and I explained to them the importance of the situation. I told him that if we didn't do this, we'd lose market share and therefore, you know, it would be bad for us and eventually agreed and we rolled it out. That, when I hear someone say that, I lose interest. Not only do I lose interest, I start thinking about what I'm going to do for dinner that night because surely my, you know, entree is going to be more interesting than this discussion. That's a horrible way to speak. If you speak like that, you've lost the interviewer, right? In fact, the interviewer probably knows you haven't even prepared. What you've done by speaking like that is giving me your interpretation of what you did. How do you know that is why you convinced the interviewer? I would prefer to hear what you actually told the interviewer. So I would prefer a response like this, well... The manager called me to his office at 6 a.m. that morning, and I knew it was going to be a difficult meeting because it's a 6 a.m. meeting, and I know that, you know, it's the morning. You usually sit up his difficult meetings in the morning. So I came in, and I sat down, and, you know, we briefly had a discussion about how the project was going, and then the conversation turned towards why I thought this was important to do. And these were the, ex these were the exact words I, you know, begin quote. I said, you know, Steve, if we go ahead and program...
with the language you want to program. I believe we can do it, and I think we can do it in the time we want to do it and within budget. But I know for a fact that our biggest competitor is programming in a new language which gives their product greater compatibility. And while we could get our product to market out faster, it's going to take us another at least 18 months to recode once the competitor launches, and we lose 18 months in the market. So while I believe everything you're saying, and I do not disagree with the value of coding in this way, I believe we have one of two options. We can either stop what we're doing now, tell the client we'll be about two months late by changing the coding, and we can explain to them the reasons, the additional functionality they would get. Or another option is to set up a new team to code an, a, a new version of the product, but start the coding immediately. So maybe we can get the client out with this version that we're already working on and get them the new version at about the same time the competitor gets it. Oh, we can do nothing. And I believe doing nothing while it won't show up immediately, three to four years down the line, we will lose a lot with the client. So that's, you know, end quote, basically. And then Steve responded to me, and he said, look, I hear what you're saying, but you have to produce more data to show me what's on the table. Basically, we need hard evidence that, you know, the competitor is coming out of this, otherwise we're just spending a lot of information. So I responded to him, and again, you know, this is a direct quote. I told him, look, Steve, we've just hired three people from our competitor. One of them is a senior coder, you know, and the other one is a senior Q&A specialist. They're both telling us the client's working on this. I think that, you know, what more evidence do we need? I mean, there's no reason for these guys to, to lie. They were fully involved. I, I didn't, I, to me personally, I don't think the issue, I think the issue is, is yes, not that we don't trust them, but I think the issue here is whether we feel that a product coded in the new language would be superior to a product co code in the old language. And then basically that's an end quote there. And what I did in this discussion is I converted the, 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 the point of the argument not to whether or not we should code in the new language, because it was clear we should. But the question is whether coding in the new language would add an additional functionality. And when I rephrase it this way, you know, Steve asked me a few questions, but basically his mindset shifted and he realized that, well, you know what? Um, the new functionality could give us new advantages in the market. And given the fact that um, we were fighting a quite a brutal war with our competitors to launch products on time for a very you know, small market, he agreed with me. Now, that's a very good way to answer this, you know you're using direct quotes. So you must use direct quotes and you must talk about the results. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to give an example of how I'd answer this question, right? So assuming I'm in an interview and a partner or whatever, you know, engagement manager has asked me, you know, Michael, tell me about a time you've led a team. Uh, be very specific about the role you played, who reported to you, who you reported to, uh, the challenges you faced and how you managed to lead the team through that situation. So I say, okay, thank you. Um, the project I'm going to talk about is um, where I led a... Um, a project team to roll out a new methodology to uh, measure the return on marketing investment when I worked at Gillette, right? Obviously, this is a fictitious example that I made up, that I developed with a client earlier today, but that should give an example. Now, the first thing I did is you notice here is that I gave a summary of what I'm going to say. Very brief summary. Th this serves two purposes. Firstly, I can look at the interview and see if he agrees with the, um, my interpretation of the question. If he doesn't agree with, the with my interpretation, he can just stop me and say, you know, Michael, actually, that's not what I'm looking for. Maybe something along these lines. And what I find with a lot of candidates is they go into a lot of detail, and maybe midway through their talk, they only realize they're going down the wrong path. By giving the summary up front, I'm letting the interviewer basically you know, condone the path I'm taking. So... Assuming he shakes his head and nods and I continue as well, you know, I was about 24 years old. Uh, it, I was just about nine months into working at Gillette um, and I joined as a graduate in a Brown University, liberal arts degree. Um, and I was working with a team that does the statistical analysis to measure how we generate sales 
on our month-end and year-end promotions, but only for new products we launch. So this is not your typical marketing team that you know does all the promotions. This is just a special team within marketing that looks at um, promotions we launch. And the size of these promotions are quite significant. I mean, if you're looking at a Walmart and so on, we're going to be spending somewhere between twenty, thirty million dollars, you know, for the for the month-end uh, national campaign. So it's quite a large sum that we're spending. And if you look at this over twelve months, you know, it's about thirty thousand dollars over twelve months, with thirty thousand dollar per month. You're looking at the region of about three hundred. $60 million. So it's a substantial amount. I had two junior analysts reporting to me, you know, Megan, Megan Leslie. Uh, both of them had statistical degrees. Uh, one had, I think, a master's degree in statistics. They had both been there before I joined. And the reason I was put into that team is because while I didn't have a statistics background, it was felt that I had a better understanding of dealing with clients and I could articulate their concerns a lot better. And when I say a client here, what I'm referring to is the other divisions within Gillette that used our services. And the main division was a unit called CMO, Customer Marketing Organization. Their job was to take the ideas and thinking from sales and branding and implement it in-store. The other client was obviously sales and branding, or sales, and the other one was branding. So I had three major clients. And I would say CMO was the most powerful client because while branding came up with the idea, ideas, CMO had the budget to implement this, right? And basically, you know, they were coming to us and saying, we're spending $30 million, are we getting the return? So what was happening here is that I would step into my role nine months after I joined Gillette, but I was only leading my, my team for one month. And one of our largest retailers, obviously, for, I cannot name them, came to us and said, look, you're spending all this money, you're taking our best shelf space, but we're not convinced that what you are doing is beneficial to us and beneficial to you. So what we're going to do is, in the next month, maybe the next six months, we're going to give the space to Schick FX. Now, obviously, if you know the history of um, the razor blade industry, Schick and Gillette have been at war for over 30 years. And, you know, it's almost you know, punishable by death if you lose shelf space to, to Schick FX. And you've got to imagine this when you go into a, shelf, into a store. The best shelf space is at eye level. And that's generally the shelf space that Gillette gets. And Schick is usually two or even three shelves below them. And basically what the retailer was saying that even though you're spending all this money on promotion, we don't think it's helping us. Therefore, we're not going to give you the space. Now, we, there was a disagreement here because if you look at the reporting structure of Gillette, uh, CMO had a lot of power because CMO was ran by expats who had experience around the world, right? And it was very difficult for branding and sales to challenge them because they were much more experienced. And CMO came back with the idea that we should challenge the retailer. I know we had spent a lot of money with them and it's about time they did something for us. And you had the sales guys who were saying, look, if you challenge them, they're going to make selling for us difficult. You know, if you challenge them here, you know, it's going to affect the old organization. And branding was pretty much indifferent because branding didn't, it didn't matter to branding. Branding managed things at a national level. They had no relationship with the retailer. They left it to CMO and they left it to sales. And pretty much we were caught in the middle because we had to come up with a statistical technique to prove to the retailer that they were benefiting. So, I went to what, what did I do exactly, right? So that's the challenge, and obviously a lot was at stake here. I mean, you can imagine 360 million dollars of ad spend. If if we if we don't get the right shelf space and we end up spending 360 million dollars, we're wasting the money. If we don't get the right shelf space and we don't and we decide to reduce our ad spend, our sales drop. So there was a lot at stake at one of our largest retailers. So what I did is, I went down to speak to each of the leaders of sales, branding, and CMO. And I went in with the viewpoint of say, okay, what do we want to accomplish 
from this opportunity because I saw it as an opportunity. I wanted to pitch it as an opportunity. I found a nice article would say that when, when a client challenges you to show your value, it's not ju- don't look at it how much you could lose. Look at how much you could gain because maybe the client doesn't know the value you're bringing genuinely. You know, the mindset we had among sales, branding, and CMO is that the client was just being difficult. And I said, look, hold on a second. Maybe the client's not being difficult. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they really don't know the value we bring. And let's be honest, you know, I asked each of the leaders, you know, which, when was the last time we actually showed the value we bring to clients? I don't just mean these generic flyers we put together for every account, but we did a real analysis of their account. And most of, most of them said, no, it wasn't important and so on. But I want to, you know, if you, if you don't mind, I want to talk to you specifically about one particular conversation I had with the head of CMO, because I think that's the conversation that shifted things in different directions. So I sat down with the head of CMO. CMO. His name was um, was Ezra. Um, and he had, you know, grown up in Morocco. Um, he had worked in the organization many years. He was really a respected person. I respected him. And he was many levels above me. He was at least four levels above me, right? So he was the equivalent of a senior vice president. And I said, Ezra, look, our job is to help you, obviously. You know, you are a client. So you tell me what you want to get out of this event. And I call it an event. And let's see how we can, you know, tailor our analysis to support you. And if you don't mind, I'm going to listen to what you're saying. I'm going to take a lot of notes. And I'm just going to give you some ideas that I have, right? Now, this basically, that's exactly the words I used with Ezra. And I think Ezra liked it because I think he thought I would be confrontational when I came in, you know, push the fact that we just have a standard um, statistical technique to apply, and, and that's the one I had wanted. So I listened to what Ezra said. And he was obviously being confrontational and pretty much demanding that the, you know, the retailer show some loyalty to us. And then I pointed out to him and said, okay, Ezra, look, these are my exact words. We have no... Ab- we can go in there and demand that the client show some loyalty to us. I mean, we can do that. I mean, I think you, you know, clearly we've got good products. We've we've supported them for many years and so on. But I think that if we do that, we we lose an opportunity to maybe educate the client. And I think that's what we should look at this as an opportunity to do. We should look at it as an opportunity to educate the client. It is possible the client is hardballing us. I mean, that is a possibility. Maybe the client exactly knows the value we have and they're hardballing us. But I personally do not believe the client is making the final decision on this. Clearly, it's going up to someone more senior within the organization. And what we need to do is avoid a situation whereby the person we interact with says that Gillette is difficult to work with, they're not providing the information we want, and therefore, because they're not providing the information we want, we need to cut their space. So what what I basically, and that's basically the words I said, but let me explain what I was trying to explain to Ezra here, is that, you know, the point is that we should not assume that the person we're meeting is a final decision maker. We should give them the tools, the ammunition to convince someone else who's a skeptic. So basically, we designed this analysis to show that, I'm not going to go into the details, but I could go if you want, is to show that by running these promotions in certain superstores that were close to highways, we were able to pull traffic from competing stores into the retailer stores. When people came to buy our product, they ended up buying other products. So what we did is, the analysis we called it was was increasing the size of the basket. A very simple analysis. And we basically videotaped people going in, showing what they were doing, right? How much they were buying, how much they were buying in addition to Gillette, and what impact it was having. And then we ran the same analysis when we weren't running the promotion to show the dip in basket size. And it was a successful 
discussion we had with the um, you know with the retailer I was not part of the discussion but I prepared the slides I was traveling at that time but I was asked to you know dial in and do my presentation by video conference um, and it went very well the, the retailer eventually kept us on the eye level shelf but they cut our space down by a little bit but not a lot you know and and what we really realized is that Schick was putting a lot of pressure on them to get space it wasn't that we weren't delivering it was that the new CEO wanted to create competition in his categories right they were running a, a strategy called competition in categories and they wanted to have more than one dominant brand per category and basically that's what happened so it was a very successful project you know I developed um, you know I wouldn't say I developed any statistical skills. I was not a statistical person. But what I realized is the value of having people with the right kind of skills in your team and providing the air cover for them to do their job. That I found was very important. The second thing I realized is that it's important to look at things from your client, from the perspective of your client. In this case, I was, when I say client, I'm just talking about the retailer and to tailor your position towards them. Now, that's the way you should talk about this question or respond to this question. Now, obviously, I've spoken longer than you should because I wanted to give you as much detail as possible. Typically, your response should be anywhere from three to four or five minutes. Five minutes response is fine. I think I did this over about seven minutes, a little bit too long. But I'm okay with that because I wanted to show you enough of the detail. And you've, shown, and you've seen I've, I've spoken about a lot of detail there, right? And a lot of detail doesn't mean speaking for a long time. It's putting a lot of facts, names of people, numbers, you know, eye level of shelves, explain the concepts, what was at stake, why we took this argument, what was my role, what I presented, what was the outcome. And if you go over in terms of time, it's okay. Trust me. Just don't go in and speak for 15 minutes. I think 5 to 7 minutes, 10 minutes, I, I would I'd be worried about 10 minutes. I would say 5 to 7 minutes is what you want to speak about. 5 minutes is good for me. But the more interesting it is, the more people want to listen. The point is, when it comes to the leadership support authority, you need to talk in detail, right? The st structure is always the same, the context, your role, people that reported to you, who you reported to, what was the challenge, why was the challenge important, how did you overcome this challenge, right? What did you specifically say and what was the result? That is a framework that would help you overcome any challenge you experience in answering this question. 